Pinegate Renewables is a fully integrated renewable energy company powering the nation's energy transition with trusted utility-scale energy and storage solutions. Building projects from a community mindset, Pinegate is committed to delivering sustainable value where we live, work, and operate. Visit pinegaterenewables.com slash learn more. Hello, and welcome to the second of our three special episodes of The Interchange, recorded live at the Solar and Energy Storage Summit in San Francisco. After a huge first day, focusing on the outlook for solar in the U.S. and beyond, we're switching focus to storage. California's total energy storage capacity has increased 20% year-on-year, with residential storage making up a massive 70% of total capacity. Solar supplies more than 25% of California's energy, but with advancements in technology making batteries even more efficient, the sky, or I guess I'll say the sun, is the limit. On the show today, I'll be sitting down with Stephen Gill from Pinegate Renewables, our podcast sponsor. Pinegate focuses on project development and financing for utility-scale solar. Everyone understands the need for storage. Everyone sees the business case. However, they see the business case from an operational perspective. They don't necessarily see the business case from a commercial perspective. Michael Kleinberg from DNV's Energy Storage and Emerging Technologies team. We're also battling the constant volatility from the primary source of demand for lithium-ion batteries, which is not the grid space, it's the electric vehicle space. Plus, discussions with Steph Spears of Community Solar Initiative Solstice. They found the number one thing that will get rid of nimbyism on clean energy projects is if developers go out and build a relationship of trust earlier on in the development process. So join us for more insight and analysis of the solar and storage markets as we go once again through the double doors of the gold ballroom and into the podcast studio to join my first guest, Stephen Gill from Pinegate Renewables. So day two of the summit is focused on storage, and I'm looking forward to getting Stephen's perspective on where the market's heading. Uh, Pinegate is doing some really exciting things in the space, so looking forward to getting into it. Quick refill of the coffee. And we're ready to go. Stephen, welcome. So we're almost a year on from the IRA and coming off of a record first quarter for solar this year. So as you look forward to, you know, your timeline, three, four, even seven years, how do you feel the prospects are for for solar over that time period? Incredibly bullish. And I can tell you that kind of being in the tip of the spear front of the house and finding land positions, the market is also incredibly bullish. Valuations have increased kind of all over the board. And a lot of it's due to, to the IRA money that is nailed there. A lot of folks aren't necessarily taking it straight to the bottom line when they're forecasting. They're saying, the first thing I absolutely need is some level of site control. Perhaps I'm willing to spend more for land than I have in the past via PSA or otherwise, simply to be able to get the position, because there are only so many positions that are out there. A lot of transmission has has come out and said it's going to be built, but until it's built, you can only actually guarantee the lines that are in the ground. So those positions are getting gobbled up left and right, and it's kind of a shark race to be able to get to this land quick enough, and moreover, to kind of explain what your company's competitive advantage is, as opposed to another developer, because I would say the vast majority of all of the... Uh, all the negotiations that I'm in now, there's at least another party who's actively negotiating. And Pinegate's a sponsor of the summit. How important is it for Pinegate to sponsor events such as these to help with that growth? Our CEO and CFO this year really came out and wanted to push forward thought leadership this year and trying to be in the forefront of the industry to make sure that the opinions of a size of a company like Pinegate are heard and arguably appreciated. So it's been something that we've tried to do across board, and I really think it's been successful. We're a large partner in ACP as well. I think it gives you the visibility in a different way, especially when it comes to networking and and being able to potentially use the, the soft power, if you will, of making sure that policies are going to be written in a way that that could potentially help a company like Pinegate long term. 
So you and I were speaking uh, a little bit earlier, and you mentioned you, you used to be in oil and gas. Really interested on you know your transition from an oil and gas guy to, to renewables, because that's very similar to me. I used to be an oil and gas guy, got on board with the energy transition, and now you know seeing all that needs to be done and the prospects that we have. So curious how you're, you know, why you, you made the switch and how that's been. I came, my career to this point had been all kind of high capital business, justifying the investments on putting a large pipeline in West Texas or building a brand new terminal in Corpus Christi or or doing something on a brownfield site on the East Coast for an assortment of companies. What I started to see was that capital was starting to dry up. I wouldn't say it was a precipitous fall right off of the cliff, but you could certainly see that capital was getting tighter and it was getting harder to get those projects funded. And it wasn't because of anything that happened on the policy side. It wasn't because there was some edict from Washington that certain things needed to happen when it came from coal. It was mostly because no one was willing to take the risk. You know, if you're going to put a billion dollar project in Texas, you've got a 20 year investment horizon. Are you willing to put that money at risk over the entire 20 years to actually get your return? And a lot of folks were saying it doesn't make sense. There's too much political risk and there's too much risk from outside investors, et cetera, to be able to fund this type of a project. Living in a high capital business, having cut my teeth in that, it made sense to start to make the move. Where was all new money starting to move? It was moving into the renewable side of the business. And again, I don't think it's necessarily because it was sexy. It was because it had become de-risked to a point that people were willing to bring the cash over. So I hate to be cynical and said I followed the money, but oftentimes follow the market and you'll see where that's moving. All new capital projects of any amount of scale are really moving into the renewable side of the business. Yeah, and so there's there's a ton of capital, I think, still sitting on the sidelines, too, because to your point, it has de-risked significantly, but there's a lot of new technologies being developed that I think capital's still waiting to see more de-risking, because it's not like the capital-intensive businesses that you were once part of, all the, that flowed into renewables. I think that there's still a bunch sitting on the sidelines waiting for more opportunities to, to deploy that capital. Would you agree with that? Absolutely would. We were having a long conversation last night about all the various technologies that that are potentially out there. I'll use mini nukes or geothermal, of which I think that the in order to get where where the renewables industry as from a holistic level wants to go, you're gonna have to have a lot of different technologies. You almost have to be technology agnostic. I'll tell you Pine Gate will not be engaging in any of any of that activity, but we're gonna stay with the competency that we we do well. But I do think there's going to be a need there. However, I think the reason why a lot of that capital hasn't flowed in is that I don't know if the business case has been entirely proven for a lot of the new technologies. I mean, I'll take the Vogel plant in Georgia. It's 450% over budget. Why would a mini nuke not be 450% over budget too? There'd just be more of them over budget all over the country. They've been talking about green hydrogen for the last 50 years. They still haven't figured it out. So while there is money that should be spent, it needs to be spent in order to, to get to the finish line on all these various technologies. I think a lot of people are also not willing to put that money at risk until somebody else has proven the business. I mean, just looking at like battery storage, there's a bunch of different technologies being developed right now that are different materials going into it. I think a lot of people are sitting back saying, okay, waiting to pick that winning horse, if you will. And so with a diverse range of technologies being developed, I think people are really just waiting for that to develop a little bit more to put that capital. But I think that there's still a lot available. It's just we need to hit that point to what you just said. Specific to battery storage, that's probably where the most activity has been in the last three years in moving technology forward. However, I'll say even on Pinegate side, we've hedged our bets on an assortment of technologies. We try to be technology agnostic, but we don't know if commercial scale nickel cadmium is the way to go or if lithium ion is going to continue to perpetuate itself or if there's something else in there that will be able to come to the forefront. I'm in a bit of a fortuitous position knowing that I've got my project so far out before they hit COD. So I can kind of say, listen, there's probably going to be a battery here. I can't tell you what the technology is going to be. It would be directional at best, but I can tell you there's probably going to be a battery here. Yeah, I think that there's going to be a number of technologies that are the winners in the energy transition because I think that there's room for a number of different companies, tools, services, technologies, you name it, that are going to be able to really grow with this energy transition. You're not going to have one magic bullet that solves the climate crisis. Absolutely. So what uh, what are you looking forward to today? 
So I believe today the part of the conference is mostly about energy storage. And I'm really interested to hear what they believe the long-term business case is. I was on a panel yesterday and we were talking specifically about standalone. And I was talking to one of my panelists who runs the renewables group for Meta. And there's intuitively, everyone understands the need for storage. The balancing need is there. Everyone sees the business case. However, they see the business case from an operational perspective. They don't necessarily see the business case from a commercial perspective. Full disclosure, it's still kind of fuzzy math. I've yet to come across anybody who's willing to pay a significant premium for battery stores, inclusive of the utility. So I'm really interested to see what Woodmac is forecasting long-term on how the economic case is going to pencil for a lot of these storage projects. MISO, there hasn't really been a business case. ERCOT, there is a business case within a certain amount. I would say the same for SPP. PJM could be probably a little oversubscribed, but the Southeast, where there hasn't been nearly the same amount of renewables penetration, there's almost zero business case today. I can't get any any regulated utility to have a conversation with us about standalone. Well, Stephen, I'll let you uh, get back to the conference, but thanks for stopping by and joining us and looking forward to see how Pinegate does uh, over the coming years. Dave, I really appreciate it, and I look forward to meeting you again in the future. So I've just come out of a panel discussion on the financing of storage projects in the U.S. Uh, That featured Michael Kleinberg, Head of Energy Storage and Emerging Technologies at DNV. DNV work with manufacturers and utilities to optimize storage systems. Looking forward to exploring the impact of the latest permitting reforms and regulations on storage finance with Michael. So enjoy the interview. Michael, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Dave. So tell us a little bit about DNV. DNV is a global advisory certification and testing company. We apply that assurance services to multi-sectors, but most notable for here is to the renewable sector, solar, storage, wind, increasingly offshore wind and hydrogen, but we we serve as the industry's technical advisor, primarily supporting financing. So we come in as an independent engineer, so providing the technical diligence to ensure responsible capital flows to these projects and make their returns on investment and that more projects get built. Where in your global portfolio are you seeing most activity, not only from a geographic standpoint, but from a technology standpoint? Absolutely. So I run the storage business in North America, so I cover the U.S. and Canada. And while the last few years, these have been the biggest markets, particularly the U.S. with particular states, we are seeing now growing interest in the U.K., Germany, Australia, some other of our global markets in APAC are even picking up. But the U.S. truly is still leading the way with you know, significantly more activity, but we are now seeing the global market begin to pick up. And how has the impact of the IRA influenced your business? In the short term, kind of people working things out has actually been a bit of a blip while folks have trying to figure out the structures and how they'll best monetize those opportunities. From my personal perspective, one of the biggest changes has been the kind of decoupling of solar and storage. We even have this term standalone storage, which only is a term because so much storage was coupled with solar because it was capturing the solar plus storage ITC. With the IRA decoupling that requirement, we now see many new standalone opportunities emerging and much, much less of the traditional solar plus storage financing that we saw. Part of that includes you know, monetizing the solar with a PTC credit and the storage with an ITC credit. So even if they're being built at the same location, they still may be separate project companies operated as separate with separate offtakes and different monetization strategies. The other major thing has been the domestic manufacturing incentives and domestic content requirements, which people are still trying to figure out how and if we will pursue those for storage projects in the U.S. And that was part of the topics today we saw in the panels just how much of the content would need to come from domestic if we were going to import battery cells and modules, for example, and whether that 10% is actually even enough to overcome the added cost of domestic manufacturing. The financing of the energy transition is something that we've talked a number of times on this podcast. Tell us about your, your panel discussion and kind of the key themes from that. Absolutely. Yeah. So today we talked about a number of the interesting kind of dynamics emerging in financing. Most notably on people's minds is the structures around transferability versus kind of traditional tax equity full partnership and whether that access to transferability will will certainly increase the supply of tax equity. But, you know, who and how are people going to to chase those? 
one thing we discussed was that you know many of the traditional developers who've been in the renewables game for a long time and have relationships with the big banks providing traditional tax equity will continue that relationship and likely continue those full partnership types of structures. But many of the emerging new players, standalone storage developers that have just developed in the last couple of years and are just trying to figure out how they're going to get their projects financed, may be able to access this new supply through transferability. As the technical advisor, we come in and are asked to think about those projects potentially a little bit differently. The general working theory is that there'll be slightly less level of diligence required on the transfer deals. We're still testing that. We're working through some of the first transfer deals now. Generally, we're scoping them a little lighter, but not seeing whether that's kind of fully getting them through to financing the projects. How have you found the capital availability for financing the energy transition? For good projects, it's there. Yeah, If there are interconnection agreements, you know, solid offtake agreements, if the equipment supply is in place and we're using kind of known suppliers, it's not a problem. It's available. With storage, there's so many new entrants. Uh, supply chain challenges on the batteries and other equipment have caused developers to have to look for new supplies, emerging battery suppliers that you know I hear about every day. Even though I've been in the market, I learn about new ones every day. Potentially signing large deals of volume to supply U.S. projects, and there's still a lot of questions on performance, bankability, you know, creditworthiness of of those suppliers. So I think the technology aspect we're still working through that, and that's one place DNV plays where we try to help these new suppliers get bankable, visit their factories, look at their data, understand how their existing projects have performed, so that they can start to build track record with third-party review and, and assurance. How has the inflationary environment right now impacted capital availability? I'm not a banker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure that I could come up with something interesting to say that for that one, but probably not. Yeah, I think maybe I'd just mention that inflation does not seem to be the major driver for challenges regarding energy storage project development. Increasing equipment supply is primarily being driven by availability. The lithium price, for example, lithium carbonate price, which we all kind of tracked over time, really spiking. We're still kind of feeling the ramifications of even kind of the initial invasion in Ukraine, which caused an energy security issue and kind of a rush on supplying up all the long-term contracts and spiking the lithium carbonate price. We're also battling the constant volatility from the primary source of demand for lithium-ion batteries, which is not the grid space, it's the electric vehicle space. And fluctuating demand and projections of what demand will be for electric vehicles. We talked a lot today in some of the panels on the dramatic uptake in domestic manufacturing and and just gigafactory battery manufacturing across the globe, the vast majority of which is allocated to the electric vehicle market. So there is an interesting kind of dichotomy of like, can the grid market diversify out of lithium-ion batteries, and maybe that gives them a chance for other other technologies to come in. So not directly an answer to the inflation question, but just saying there's a number of challenges beyond inflation that are affecting storage kind of cost struggles. You know, we were on this very nice, very year-on-year fast declining cost curve, and the last couple of years have significantly kind of challenged that. Yeah. Any concerns on the supply chain for the materials on the battery storage side? Uh, yeah, yeah. Which ones do you want to talk about? There's a, the traceability, the where and how much we can get. You know, the classic conversation of right now, China owns all the processing, a significant amount of the mining, but the vast majority of the processing. So we ship unrefined lithium to China and we refine it to battery grade materials there. And then that gets distributed as feedstock to other, other manufacturing. So it, it's an interesting supply chain challenge. And we're seeing a lot of investment that the U.S. government, the DOE LPO office, a lot of investment and incentives to onshore manufacturing, even extraction and processing, but all of that's going to take some time. So it's an interesting challenge, but certainly battery manufacturing itself is growing very quickly. And just but the materials to, to feed those factories continues to look a little interesting. Yeah. Have you seen the uh, the different technologies and the activity around there with the multiple combinations of the materials that go into different batteries, right? So I know that some are looking at trying to reduce the need for nickel or cobalt or lithium with other materials, but what are you finding the activity around that is? Yeah, we've had this long kind of transition for the grid market from what was called an NMC or nickel manganese cobalt battery to the LFP or lithium iron phosphate 
which are generally less energy dense. The higher energy density is much more attractive to a vehicle, lower weight, longer range, where the grid, when you can take a bit more real estate and spread that energy out over a bit more space, the LFP starts to look a lot more attractive there, particularly with a reduced cost. We continue to see LFP just completely dominate the stationary storage market, and we'll likely continue to see that. And that gets back to the idea of manufacturing. Much of the manufacturing is focused on NMC, nickel, magnus, cobalt batteries. And while they are trying to reduce some of the critical minerals in there, they still are required. Eventually, we may be able to find another step, but I think lithium-ion has a fairly long runway still before we get displaced by some other kind of leapfrogging technology. The grid is a space for innovation, I think, whereas electric vehicles will continue to be dependent on these higher energy density cells for a while. Michael, I appreciate you stopping by and and talking with us. Uh, Interesting discussion, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks. Pinegate Renewables is a vertically integrated renewable energy company powering the sustainable energy transition. With one of the largest operational fleets and solar development pipelines in the nation, we support sustainability commitments and provide renewable solutions for utility and commercial partners across North America. We have a trusted history in executing utility-scale projects that generate cost-effective energy solutions and provide attractive long-term investment opportunities. Pinegate built solar projects with a community mindset and is committed to delivering sustainable value where we live, work, and operate. Visit pinegaterenewables.com slash learn more. Community solar is one of the main talking points for people here at the summit. It's a concept that could speed up the rollout of solar for homes that aren't equipped with solar panels on their roof. Steph Spears co-founded the Community Solar Initiative Solstice, which is dedicated to radically expanding the number of households that can take advantage of clean energy using community-shared solar farms. Steph, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about Solstice and, and the work you're doing. Yeah, so Solstice connects households and businesses to community shared solar farms, and then we manage the customer experience for the life of the 20 to 25 year project. So what what makes you passionate about community solar? What, what's going on with the industry that really gets you excited? Yeah, so I grew up the daughter of a single immigrant mom who raised three kids on a minimum wage salary. And so that's really hard to do in America, unfortunately. And so I watched her struggle to pay different bills, the electricity bill, um, the phone bill. And I realized that in America, very few people have access to clean energy. And the people that need solar savings the most are currently the least likely to get it. Folks like people who live in former fossil fuel communities or low-income Americans or communities of color. So Solstice was created so that we could make affordable, clean energy accessible to every person in this country. And we do it by creating financial innovations, by creating software innovations uh, that make it easier for people to participate in clean energy. And we work with developers and a big organizational institutions of trust in the communities like schools and municipalities and housing providers to connect their uh, communities to clean energy. Yeah, there's a lot of good initiatives going on to, to help with that and make sure that communities that aren't just more developed are the ones that are benefiting from these technologies on the energy transition, but it's yeah. really across, across the board. Yeah, we are at the precipice of an incredible transition, right? Like the next 10 years are going to be such an industrial revolution for energy because the way we've gotten our electricity hasn't changed in over a century. And it's going to change in the next 10 years. But it's not a, a question of whether we'll get clean energy on the grid. It's a question of whether everyone will get to benefit from it communities don't see the financial benefits from the clean energy revolution and community solar can change that. It can make people get access to electricity savings. And if communities are included in the development process more, they can actually help get permitting done. They can help uh, actually make the project more durable. They will prevent the nimbyism we're seeing all across the country. So that social contract between communities and developers and the utilities needs to be strengthened in order for these projects to happen. How do you incentivize the developers to, to build these projects? What, what other ways? Yeah, so there's some lessons from the last 
decade of community solar projects. And different states have implemented programs differently across different states. So we know what actually incentivizes developers comes down to a few components. Um, First, you have to have a transparent award allocation process, like who gets the developer awards for projects in each state. That is not often transparent. And it's often an RFP process that's subjective, meaning someone is assigning points to the process, when it really should be a first-come, first-served process with no caps, and it should have the clear qualification uh, up front about what developers need to apply for the, the program, and that should include project maturity milestones, like proving you have site leases, proving you can get interconnection. Because if you don't do that, we've seen programs get delayed, like in New Mexico, because of the subjective application process. And if you have caps, like we saw in Massachusetts and Colorado, then the whole state's programs grind to a halt and all projects stop. And if you don't have that project maturity requirements as part of the application process, you'll see what we saw in Maine and Maryland, where a lot of projects get awarded and then they fall out of the queue. And and how can you get communities to sign up? I mean, beyond just kind of education, what other type of things can you do? Yeah. So education is number one and not just for consumers, by the way. We have to educate politicians who are writing these laws and regulators who are writing the program rules. That is really important. And people don't remember that we have to also educate the the, the people who write the rules. There's also ways to make sure the qualification standards in these state programs aren't onerous. So when we're talking about low-income carve-outs in community solar programs, the qualification standards are often burdensome for the customer. They have to prove they're poor. They have to prove they're poor through showing income documentation. When really more pioneering states have adopted things like geo-eligibility, looking at census tracts where there are confirmed disadvantaged communities and having that be the qualification standard. Or having, like we have in Delaware and New Jersey and Maryland, they've implemented self-attestation where a customer can just attest that they're low income because studies have proven that fraud in low-income programs is actually very, very low. So we shouldn't be worried about fraud. And if we allow people to self-attest that they're low income, droves more people sign up. For just a couple of statistics from Solstice's data, when you have someone geo-eligible qualify versus someone who is qualified by showing their income statements, 2.3 more customers will fall out of the sales funnel, meaning they won't sign up because it's harder for them to show documentation than it is for them to be eligible through census tracts or other kinds of maps that show where disadvantaged communities live, like California and the government have now um, implemented. Interesting stat. Yeah. Another, another one more stat for you about how to get people to actually sign up for clean energy is if you go door to door, you can get a 1% conversion rate from that stranger to stranger contact on clean energy. But if someone hears about community solar from a friend or a neighbor, they convert at a 30 to 50% conversion rate. So it's not just education that matters, the messenger matters. Mm -hmm. And getting the word of mouth out there uh, between friends and neighbors. Yeah, and that's actually, everyone's like, oh, community, that's so small, that's so niche, that's not scalable. And I, I show them these numbers to show them that Community is actually the most scalable force in the world if you know how to harness and mobilize communities. And you empower them. Like, you you include them in the decisions. You approach them with humility and include them um, in the process, and they will back your project. There's a study in the University of Indiana, the last stat I'll quote, and they looked at 30 years of nimbyism on clean energy projects, and they assessed why... Do 84% of Americans support clean energy, but why is NIMBYism on the rise? And they found the number one thing that will get rid of NIMBYism on clean energy projects is if developers go out and build a relationship of trust earlier on in the development process. Not just trying to get subscribers, but trying to engage with community leaders in the development process. When you're doing site diligence, when you're doing interconnection, that will get rid of NIMBYism. That's what this study from University of Indiana shows. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, NIMBYism is a problem, you know, across across the board. I mean, whether it's energy or telecommunications, totally. I mean, you name Housing. it. But it, interesting to see that with the support for the energy transition, that there's still a rise in NIMBYism going going on. But it's almost a rational response, right? When you, when someone, you know, I, I was just driving through the panhandle of Oklahoma, and that's a community where you're just seeing economic devastation as fossil fuel communities no longer can rely on fossil fuels. And then an outsider comes in. They they think they're doing God's work because we're building solar and solar is better than fossil fuels and it's better for the environment. And we forget that just building clean energy doesn't mean communities want it. Because if you don't actually talk to communities and humbly ask them about their concerns and questions, unfamiliarity breeds resistance. It's a rational response, especially for low-income households. So tell us a little bit about Energy Allies. Yeah, so that is when Solstice first got started. Solstice is a, a company that is a customer services and software company. And then we had a sister organization called Solstice Initiative that later became Energy Allies. And so they're a separate nonprofit. My co-founder and I serve on their board, but they're led by this amazing woman from Puerto Rico named Yesenia Rivera, who spent many, many years as a community organizer. And she's lived through Hurricane Maria. And she's lived the experience of being a frontline climate community member. And so she is leading the organization to build community-led, community-owned, community solar. So how do we put the community in community solar? We'll have the community be a bigger part of the decision-making. And she and her team are doing incredible things in partnership with a lot of grassroots environmental justice organizations across the country. Well, Steph, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Rapid decarbonization of power systems will be key to meeting the one and a half degree global warming target in the Paris Agreement. However, integrating high shares of renewables such as wind and solar, given their inherent intermittent nature, raises challenges for the stability and security of power systems. Long duration energy storage with longer durations of eight to even a hundred hours holds great promise as a low cost solution for these challenges. My next guest is eager to share how long duration storage can manage this. Andreas Fornwald is CEO of Dusen Grid Tech. Dusen provides utility-scale storage system integration using an AI and data-driven platform. Andreas, thanks for stopping by and joining us on the show. Yeah, uh, great to be here. It's a fantastic event, fantastic venue, such a beautiful hotel, and such a great industry. Yesterday, when I went here, I learned from Woodmac that in six years we'll have more batteries installed in the United States, more capacity of batteries, than the whole nuclear reactors combined. That's huge. It's massive. It's a, it's a big undertaking, and that's one of the things that uh, is a key theme from this summit is there's so many things going on in the industry right now, but there's also a lot of factors at play that kind of need to come together to make sure that we hit some of the challenges that we have ahead of us. Yeah, I, as a CEO of Duosan Grid Tech, is a subsidiary of the big Duosan. Duosan is one of the top 10 Korean companies, an old APC and the oldest Korean conglomerate. They build nuclear power plants, of course, so they know what I mean with nuclear reactors. And Duosan will also combine cycle plants, so they are in all kinds of energy. So, and they decided to acquire in 2016 one Energy. One Energy was a sort of spin-off of Microsoft. That's why we are in Seattle. We didn't choose the rain, but it's nice to be in Seattle. <laughs> it's rainy and nice. And uh, we started as a software company. And then thanks to Duosan and to the investment of Duosan and their care, the company evolved to an EPC. We are a turnkey battery integrator, an EPC, Engineering Procurement Construction, with a strong software department. And you were just on a panel discussing the opportunities and challenges facing long-duration storage implementation. Uh, what were some of the key takeaways or interesting points from that discussion? The key takeaway is that we don't have yet the breakthrough chemistry, so it's still evolving. We need to be chemistry agnostic as an integrator, as a, and we need to have that kind of software and that kind of system which can combine all different chemistries. So we designed that. Our, our control system, DJIC, can combine different cells, different chemistries, NMC with LFP, 
we can have them all because we have a two million code system uh, with artificial intelligence on top, so very sophisticated software. Software, beside the chemistry, is the key to an efficient long-duration storage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, th and that's key to be chemistry agnostic, right? as you said, because there's still a number of different technologies being developed, different compositions. Yes. You know, what ultimately ends up being the winner or kind of the lead horse, there'll probably be multiple that'll be a part of it. But being able to provide that service, you know, to any type of technology that may be developed is going to be very helpful. Yeah, that's what we want to do. And of course, we are talking about electrochemical. We are not talking about gravitational or hydro pumping storage. That's a different thing. But we are talking about what we mean as a battery. And I see that the, the future is also making very efficient long duration storage. We at the moment, the runtime efficiency is something above 90 percent. And that's not including the balance of plant. So we still have quite a percentage of losses in, in all the additional equipment. And we can, uh, with a better architecture, we can save a couple of percentage, which is huge. If you have one gigawatt, a couple of percentage, it's a lot of money. How about the opportunities? I mean, wh where are you seeing the industry going over the next decade? Oh, the industry will diversify. We'll have case by case, so it, we will have a different solution for solar, wind, and we'll have different solution for arbitrage or short term and uh, for EVs. So I think, and that's an old saying, one size fits all. It's not applicable to batteries. It's depending on the use case. How do you see the duration improving over the next decade? I'll give you an example. When we started our first uh, big battery site, it was 150 megawatt hour, 2019, so it's almost four years. It looks like a century in our industry. <laughs> we, have, we were talking about one hour. Now we are talking about four hours. The average, uh, the average contract we have now is four hours. And so what is Doosan doing to take advantage of some of these opportunities? We improve our software. We have a test lab for software. We, we have a great procurement team that is going. We mainly import our uh, batteries from China. So we go in, we work together with the manufacturer on the technical specification. We help them to achieve qualification and uh, certification, UL, F uh, the fire protection, FPA. So we help them to, uh, to become reliable and acceptable in American market. That's the first stage. The second stage, we want to bring them to U.S. We want to build a uh, manufacturing in U.S. We will start like, with assembly. We will assembly containers, models, racks. And then later, of course, uh, we will we'll look in a cell manufacturing. But the idea is localization. And I think that's the big war, big buzzword on this conference, localization. U.S. cannot depend 100% on the supply chain from China. It has to be a mix. Exactly. And where, from a regional standpoint, are you seeing the most activity? The most activity now is on the supply chain, of course, of localization. I would say two years ago, everybody was talking about chemistry. Now everybody is talking about localization. That doesn't mean that people are not talking about chemistry. But localization, made in America, is the buzzword here. Which is good. And what about in terms of business-wise? Like wh from a regional standpoint, where are you seeing kind of the most activity or clients demanding more of your resources? So what I see is, and of course, that's from my point of view because we are, we are operating in a specific niche. What I see is that the appetite for uh, batteries is growing enormously at the utilities, at the traditional regulated utilities. Before three, four years ago, we had almost only developers. Now a lot of utilities are coming in, even smaller utilities. We are working with Tampa Electric. We are working with Nova Scotia. We are working with uh, even municipalities address us. So I see a lot of utilities are looking into the battery space.
And, you know, one of the things that we've talked a couple times on this podcast about is recycling and battery recycling. And, oh, that's a big yeah, one. Yes, so, I mean, it's one of those things where there's not a huge amount of feedstock yet, right, for recycling to be able to be scalable and profitable. But at some point, we would expect that to happen. What are your views on the future of recycling and its part in the industry? I, I don't have too much insight, but uh, I want to quote a company, Redwood Materials, where my friend G.B. Straubel works. He was the CTO of Tesla, and he created... Uh, we both graduated from Stanford. He created this company years ago. It was a startup, and I think recycling uh, will be very big. And we have to have the whole chain from lithium um, mining to recycling covered, and hopefully all in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, uh, Andres, I appreciate you stopping by and chatting with us. It was a pleasure, and... Uh, I really, I'm really happy to be here, and if you allow me to say big thank you to Wood McKenzie. Great organization, great speakers, great venue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. So we're almost at the end of the second and final day of the summit here at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. Sad to, uh, sad to leave San Fran behind me, and I didn't get a chance to hit the indoor pool, but you can't, can't do everything. But I'll be sitting down shortly with Kelly Sarber from Strategic Management Group, a consulting firm focused on financing the energy transition. Kelly joined us last year's summit in San Diego, and I'm looking forward to hearing her thoughts on how things have evolved and changed since the IRA. Kelly, welcome back. Well, thank you. It's so good to be back. You joined us last year for the summit in San Diego, a little bit of a different venue. How has the industry evolved or changed since we spoke a year ago at this summit? Well, I think there's really been some significant changes. Obviously, everybody's talking about the IRA and and that that's been a big kick in the pants for a lot of projects. And, you know, trying to figure out the adders, I think a lot of companies are looking at, you know, where there's some crossover opportunities in the natural gas or the coal plant conversion. So that's attracted a whole new group of players, frankly, because the risk perspective is a little bit different. But there's been a whole bunch of new people coming in looking at that opportunity. And then I think we're seeing a lot of changes in terms of how we're going about developing the projects. There's a lot more independent power producers that are really looking at pivoting some of their fossil fuel plants also. Not necessarily for you know the reasons that me as a developer got into the business, but more because they're seeing the writing on the wall that these energy storage projects are going to start replacing natural gas peakers. And they're seeing that as a business opportunity really coming forward in the future. So they're really moving to address that gap that they're seeing in their own portfolios by pivoting to batteries at those locations. So we've got really new players coming in, some of them a lot different than traditional renewable energy companies because they have different risk perspectives and they also have the ability to self-finance. And what's your view on the impact of the IRA? I mean, I think it's been terrific. It's interesting in the middle of it and certain utility power purchase agreements, we had the utility wanting to claim all of the benefits of that. And yet at the same time, we had these COVID impacts where there was tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars impacts to some of my projects on the cost basis. So there was a little wrangling over those benefits. But I think altogether, it's been a really, really great incentive for these projects. But we continue just to see the projects developed in the same state. So we're hopeful that other states are going to look at replicating the market structures that we have in California and a couple other locations where there's going to be same demand in other states. Because right now we have an increasing population of developers interested in developing in the same exact states where everybody has already been developing for the last, you know, three years. So how would you recommend we go about trying to get some of those other states involved more? Yeah, I know you mentioned before uh, Texas, California, Arizona, New York. I mean, how can we kind of get everybody else on board? Well, I mean, it's, it's no secret that the reason why we're developing in California and in Texas is because the market structure supports, you know, us coming in. In California, it's through the stacked revenues. So, you know, you get paid for capacity, resiliency, voltage support, you know, the CCA have a really strong market. So each of those revenue streams are separated, and yet they provide for a way to 
balance or hedge, you know, your financing. So if you have a really good CCA contract in California, you know, and you know from a forecast what that node's variability is going to be, that's really all you need to really get a project off the ground. So in New York, for example, it's just a capacity market. And I can tell you, while the interest is very high in New York to do these projects, the market structure currently doesn't support it from a capacity standpoint. So what we're seeing is NYSERDA is working on what we're calling RECs or adders to really help support the market. And I think you're going to see a lot more projects moving forward once those RECs are added and index RECs, they're calling it. And the other thing we're seeing in New York in particular, why there's a lot of focus on energy storage there is because of the offshore wind industry picking up. And the offshore wind guys really are seeing a way to arbitrage. They're very low margins in their energy pricing by putting storage behind the meter at where their offshore wind projects are coming in. So it's a way for them to sweeten somewhat their performance by taking advantage of merchant capacity in that market using their renewable energy as the arbitrage effort. Yeah, makes sense. So what are you working on these days? So I have a 100 megawatt project that is hopefully starting construction, finger crossed, very quickly in New York City and Astoria. That'll be the largest project in New York State. That'll be on the grid, we hope, probably by end of fourth quarter 2025. That process has been very, very interesting, and I've learned a lot. And I think everybody in the business, I'm vice chair of New York Best, which is our trade group, and I've been trying to really teach developers about, you know, what are the, you know, challenges? What are the winning lessons? You know, what have we learned? And, and how can we, as developers, developers do a better job at citing these projects and being transparent in our communities about what we're trying to accomplish. New York is a tough market, but it's a harbinger, I think, of what's to come in the country because we've had a lot of, of scooter mobility, scooters, the bikes, a lot of fires, and there's been a lot of deaths. And the public confuses utility-scale storage battery projects with these you know, unregulated batteries that are coming in from outside that really have created you know, a lot of disasters. So I think the industry really needs to differentiate who we are and to make sure that the public knows that we're working very closely with our first responders and that they're comfortable with the codes and the protective safety devices that they've put in place to make sure that the public is protected. So I see that as sort of, you know, storm clouds on the horizon that the industry together really needs to address and to, and to come down firmly on so that we don't all of a sudden have unrelated NIMBY impacts from other types of events now pollinating you know, our siting campaigns around our projects. So that's one thing. I developed what's now become the largest solar plus storage project in the world is what my friends are telling me, whether or not that's true. I know it's true for the United States. It's 3.2 gigs of solar PV connected to two gigs of storage. With the opportunity, we're looking at a hydrogen hub at the same location. It's in Western Arizona. And you know, call out to my friends at Starwood Lotus Infrastructure. They just rebranded building this 10 West link, that's a new 500 kV line, really between west of Phoenix to California, allowing us to bring all of this power into California as a Kaiso Bucket One resource. So that's been a tremendous project. And I think another replicable project that we could do with the BLM and other locations. So I'm really, really excited about opportunities of working with the Bureau of Land Management on a lot of other locations that has the same sort of characteristics to provide that kind of a footprint to do these kinds of really big move the needle projects. So those two projects, New York and Arizona, I mean, projects of that size, what's the land requirement for those? On the Arizona project, that's approximately 18,000 acres. We were able to get the BLM to convey about 8,800 acres to the local county, which is very poor, that needed the revenues from the leases. And then we also have leases specifically with the Bureau of Land Management on property that's contiguous to the property that was conveyed. We also have consolidated land with the state leasing agency that owns land, that all those lease payments go to help the schools. You know, so it's kind of a a mishmash of a lot of different property owners, you know, but aggregated to create the footprint that we needed to build that size facility. Great. What's been kind of the most interesting thing that you've heard so far at the summit? Well, I'm fascinated about all of the money that's really circling this opportunity. 
and what players are kind of coming in and who they really are. Because I think traditionally we looked at building these projects using a PPA as a basis for financing and, and then sort of hopeful that once it rolled out of that PPA that the merchant opportunities were there. And, and renewable energy companies traditionally like to use the PPA as a financing hedge. Now we're really seeing a lot of IPP companies coming in. We're not seeing the power purchase agreements with the tenors that we used to see. So we've got shorter term tenors. And really what that's doing is sort of separating, you know, I should say the girls from the women instead of the boys from the men and separating people who really are going to probably be in a little bit more risk position with some of these projects as they move forward. And I think that's why, you know, I'm really focused in particular in New York on the audience of independent power producers like Arclight, you know, who owns Eastern Generation, moving forward to pivot to batteries, like LS Power looking at their Raven wood facility to pivot that to be a receiving area for offshore wind and then coupling that with batteries. You know, so again, we've got different types of players entering the market that have possibly higher expectations for returns on these assets, but then being very comfortable in a merchant environment for them to trade 100, 200 megawatts, you know, on a daily basis is a blip on their trading screen as it may compare to a renewable energy developer that in the past has never been in the merchant business. You know, so I think that's where you're seeing some changes of people coming in and also some differences in how these projects are getting financed. Yeah, so the the capital providers are more comfortable with shorter term PPAs or even no PPAs at all. Well, I, I think that that's where sort of the, you know, what, what do they say? The rubber hits the road or what to say. You know, I'm coming up with a lot of good sayings today. I'm proud of myself. But I think that's really where, from a balance sheet standpoint, a lot of these companies have excess capital and that they are looking at pivoting to what they think is going to be the next step for them, you know, if they want to keep their model of doing merchant trading in these, you know, high performing markets, right? Which obviously California and New York is a good market for merchant. Texas, obviously the king of them all. So I think that's why you're seeing they're not as worried about the climate for equity like others are because they're just going to you know, self-finance and then go out and, and lever with the right kind of debt. On the renewable energy side, I think you're going to see less and less of these middle market and smaller developers able to kind of stay in the game as long as it's going to take. It's going to get more expensive because it's going to take longer. And I can tell you because I am the site whisperer in New York City and it is really hard to find property there. It's very expensive. We're competing against you know, warehouses and companies like Amazon who are picking up every single inch of industrial property. And so, you know, we're finding that we're competing against them in markets that we're expected to be very competitive. And it's a struggle, plus it's taking longer. So instead of it being four years to bring a project through from the interconnect studies to all of the different permitting, now it's probably going to take, you know, five to six years. So you got to have deep pockets. So I, I predict a lot of M&A going on around projects that are half-baked. Well, Kelly, I appreciate you returning to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Well, that's it from us. I'm feeling a little like it's Christmas Day. You know, you look forward to the event for months and then it just flies by. The Solar and Energy Storage Summit 2023, I think, was a huge success. I'd like to thank all my guests for their time and you guys for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the insights and analysis, and I hope you can join us next year. Bye for now. Bye for now.